0: Welcome to the podcast for A Better Life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Massimo Piliucci about stoicism and living a better life. Massimo Piliucci is a philosopher, author, professor, speaker, and has studied in both biology and philosophy. His latest book, is A Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living. He was featured in the book version of A Better Life. In fact, he was the second person I ever photographed for the project. I asked him about his background growing up in Italy.
1: I was born in Monrovia, in Liberia, on uh, the west uh, coast of Africa. That's because my father at the time was working uh, for a British company overseeing road construction. But, uh, but I grew up in Rome because my parents moved back to Rome immediately, was shortly after I was born. So I grew up in Rome. Um, uh, my in, I, I studied an initial, you know, the, my first uh, academic career was in biology. And um, I got my PhD. At, I moved to the United States, got my PhD at the University of Connecticut. And uh, I became a, you know, professor of biology in a couple of different universities. Uh, first University of Tennessee, and then, then Stony Brook University on Long Island. And then uh, my uh, you know, mid-life crisis hit and uh, I decided to shift career and I moved back to, I mean, I moved to philosophy after having gone back to graduate school and gotten my degree in that
0: field. And so I've been doing philosophy of science uh, ever since. I know you're an atheist. We talked about that before. Were you raised in a religious environment or, and did you convert to atheism later? How did that work?
1: I was raised in a mildly religious environment. I mean, growing up in Rome, it's almost inevitable that uh, you kind of fall into the the Catholic fold. Uh, although my parents were really mildly practicing Catholics, if if at all. In fact, I think my father, uh, my father and I rarely talked about religion. But I would think that he was uh, something like a deist pretty much. Uh, My mother sort of pretended to be Catholic, but I never particularly noticed anything and anything in the way of practice. Uh, Nevertheless, I went to catechism, I got first communion, you know, that sort of stuff. And then um, I got to the point uh, in um, middle, in in, uh, high school where I was having increasing doubts. And at that point, I kind of left the church uh, and I considered myself a secular humanist for decades after that. Uh, until, of course, uh, the above-mentioned um, midlife crisis hit, and, and that's where I got into stoicism.
0: So was it a culture shock when you moved from—because, you know, we talked about you know Italy is a fairly religious country, but the United States is a very religious country, too. So was <laughs> it a weird—and people, I think— practiced it very differently here. Was it it a bit of a culture shock, kind of looking at the religiosity of how things were in Italy versus how things were when you moved to the United States? Yes, although with one caveat, well, first of
1: all, although... Italy, is, of course, there is, there's the Vatican, the seat of the Catholic Church and everything. But in, as a country, it's not particularly religious, even by European standards, and certainly not by American standards. Uh, in the cities, the major cities, you know, I rarely met anybody who actually went to church, for one thing. Uh, you know, most of the churches in Rome are open for tourists so that you can see the paintings and the sculptures, but not not necessarily because people actually use them as places of worship. When I went to uh, when I came to the United States, I went first to Connecticut, and the culture shock wasn't really much of a shock. To to, to be uh, to be honest, uh, things really didn't feel that different, except for this weird thing that Americans have of, of putting their their flag everywhere, um, mm-hmm. which is not something that Italians or Europeans in general do. I mean, we, the only time I've seen the Italian flag other than on in on embassies and on the day of. Uh, Uh, you know, the establishment of the Republic, which would be our equivalent of July 4th. Other than that, it's only when the the national soccer team plays. So that was a little weird, but I didn't notice anything particularly from a religious perspective until, of course, I moved to Tennessee in the middle of the Bible Belt. That really was a culture shock. I mean, to be surrounded, including some of my neighbors, by people who did not believe in evolution, who took the Bible more or less literally in the way, at least that's the way they saw it. Uh, that was that was shocking.
0: Yeah. Did it uh, kind of change your opinion of kind of the country you were living in? Did it like what, what was that like?
1: Uh, I take my so I spent nine years in Tennessee and I take those years to have been a very good education for me in American culture. I, I, I have a far better understanding of the, the divide between the so-called red and blue states and, you know, wh- why all these these incredibly, uh, you know, polarizing uh, political environment exists and, and, and so on and so forth. So I took it more as a, you know, I behaved as an observer, as a cultural observer, almost as a cultural anthropologist when I was there. Uh, my personal life was fine because I was looking, you know, I was working in the university where pretty much the environment was secular. And uh, I managed, of course, to make friends in the secular community. In fact, that's how I became active in the first place in the, in the skepticism and atheism because I was approached by the local skeptic group um, after I gave a public lecture on evolution. And uh, and that's what actually got me started in that area. So. So in terms of personal life, I wasn't really that much affected. But in terms of observing the culture and sort of try to understand what was going on, that was definitely an interesting uh, uh, learning experience.
0: And that's also where you say that you had this midlife crisis. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it was nothing, you know, particularly uh, exceptional. Uh, I was, it was a little early midlife crisis, like in, I was in my early 40s, and uh, it was Kind of catalyzed by the fact that several things happened in the same year, actually in a span of a few months, that normally happen to people uh, or very often happen to people. But, uh, but to me, they happen all at the same time, pretty much. So my, my wife at the time divorced me, uh, which came as a shock because we had a, what I thought <laughs> mistakenly, as it turns out, uh, a very good relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, my father died, uh, which was un- uh, not unexpected. He was suffering from cancer for several years, although he was fairly young. He died at 69. Um, and then I changed job and moved to a different city uh, and, you know, m- and b- bought a new house. So any psychologist will tell you that one of those things taken by itself is, is somewhat stressful. If you get, you know, four or five of those to hit you in the span of a few months, then it's like, hmm, wait a minute here. Is the universe trying to tell me something? And of course, I didn't believe that the universe was trying to tell me anything. Uh, but um, I reached toward my secular humanism to, for the first time basically in my life. Oh, I, I should say, I guess the second time after I left the church for some help. It's like, okay, so how, did sacri- how does a psychohumanist deal with uh, this, this kind of situation? And I found absolutely no answers because psychohumanism uh, is a you know, nice general philosophy. It's about you know, uh, respecting other people, human rights, and all that sort of stuff. But that doesn't really help you when it comes to a crunch, in your personal life. I mean, I, you know, those general principles were not, not at all helpful. And that's where I started looking uh, for alternatives,
0: basically. And what did you find in terms of alternatives? Well, since I was studying philosophy at the time
1: and in graduate school, uh, and in fact, my my first course, the the first two courses that I took was, were one in ethics and the other one on Plato. uh, So ancient Greek philosophy. So I figured, okay, well, if there's an answer, Anywhere that surely that's going to come from philosophy. After all, secular humanism itself is a philosophy uh, in the first place. And so I started looking very systematically. The first thing that I did was I um, started reading about Buddhism because a number of friends uh, said, you know, this is this is probably that's probably a direction where you want to look. And um, and I did, but it uh, Buddhism didn't really speak to me. Um, in, in, for, for one thing, the language uh, and the metaphor and the imagery were pretty alien to me, uh, not not surprisingly, since I grew up in a Western country and not in India or China or Japan. Uh-huh. Uh, but beyond that, there was something a little more uh, problematic. That is, the, the, a lot of the ethics, the, the Buddhist ethics is actually very similar, as it turns out, as I discovered later, to stoic ethics. So that was actually OK. But the metaphysics I just couldn't get. Uh, you know, couldn't wrap my mind around it because, you know, these, these notions of karma and reincarnation and all that sort of stuff. Like, no, no, no. I, I left the Catholic Church precisely because I didn't believe in that sort of stuff. I, I'm not going to get into a philosophy that um, uh, makes a big use of uh, that kind of notion. So that was out. So pretty soon I realized that um, the answer was going to come from an area, broad area that philosophers call uh, virtual ethics and virtual ethics is you know it originated in ancient greece and was developed then in in rome in ancient rome and it has been actually going through a resurgence of interest even in in professional academic philosophy over the last several decades and uh, what it is about is essentially an approach where ethics doesn't just mean that you get answers to questions of you know what is right and what is wrong but um you actually get to work on your character to become a better person, and and so that, that appealed to me. And I said, okay, well, that sounds like that sounds about right. I, I need to work on my character. I need to become a better person. Now, when you start looking into virtue ethics, the first stop usually is Aristotle. So mm-hmm. I, stu- I started studying Aristotle. And I thought it's interesting, has a lot of things to say, but, but there's, there were two problems. First of all, Aristotle was very much theoretical and not much in the way of practice. <laughs> he doesn't really give you a lot of guidance in terms of like, okay, fine, these are, these are good ideas, but, but how do I implement them in my life? And also, Aristotle turned out to be a little bit too much of an aristocrat from my taste. Not surprisingly, because, hmm. you know, his father was uh, the personal physician uh, of the king of Macedon. So he literally was an aristocrat. And, you know, his, his view of the good life or what these, the Greeks called uh, the eudaimonic life, the life worth living. His idea, Aristotle's idea of that kind of life was, look, you need to work on your character. You need to, to act virtuously, as the, the word uh, goes. The term goes. But you also need a number of so-called externals, things like um, good, uh, you know, good education and and health and even good looks. And I said, no, wait a minute. (laughs) That that can't be right. Um, First of all, I'm screwed. Before talking about good looks, and, and also, and also, it's like no, that really sounds like aristocratic. That, mean, that means that most people, or a lot of people in life, uh, in uh, in the world, not They're not going to have a good life, according to Aristotle's mm-hmm. you know, way of looking at things. So I said that's that's not going to do it. So the next stop was uh, Epicurus, and the mm-hmm. reason for that because Epicureanism is also a type of virtual ethics and psycho humanists often are sympathetic to epicureanism and for for a number of reasons uh, first of all because it, from a metaphysical perspective epicureanism actually works pretty well uh, f- uh, in terms of modern science you know epicurus was an atomist he believed that um the world is uh, made of atoms bumping into the void, you know, that sort of stuff. He was not an atheist, but was such an, uh, a deist that, you know, he basically said that God doesn't give a crap about us. He's not concerned with things in the world. So it's essentially as just as good as if it didn't exist. So that there, there is, and in terms of ethics, um, Epicureanism puts an emphasis on personal relationships, you know, friendship. There's a lot of, that is a big uh, inf- uh, um big emphasis on friendship. So that all sounded good. However, the goal of in life for an epicurean, the eudaimonic life for an epicurean is a life without pain, not only physical pain but especially uh, mental emotional pain. Uh-huh. And that's why Epicurus said uh, counselled that we should just uh, not get socially and politically involved because as we all know, social <laughs> and political involvement does bring pain. Uh-huh. If it doesn't, that means you're just not paying attention. That wasn't for me. I, I thought, no, wait a minute, that, that kind of life, you know, I cannot imagine a meaningful life without social political involvement. So, so that's where I was after, you know, a few months to almost a year of searching. And uh, at that point, um, on my Twitter feed, of all things, I see this, this thing that said, uh, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I said, what the hell is Stoic Week and why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? Because my thinking at the, t- at the time was the, based on the stereotype on the common stereotypes of, you know, Stoics being people who go through life with a stiff upper lip and trying to suppress emotions, kind of a, like a Mr. Spock from Star Trek. And as much as I love the character of Spock, I really couldn't see my life working out that way. Turns out I was wrong. That was a stereotype. And maybe we're going to get into it in a, in a few minutes. But I realized, I said, wait a minute, the Stoics. So that's Marcus Aurelius. And I remember that I, I did read the meditations in college. And I found an interesting book. And then uh, the Stoics, that's well, also Seneca. And I actually translated Seneca in Latin, from Latin uh, when I was in high school. But somehow I never put the two together. I never actually understood that when I was younger, that Seneca and Marcus Aurelius were actually talking about a coherent philosophy of life. I thought they were just, you know, writing stuff. Uh, so I said, <laughs> all right, let me take a look. And so I signed up for, for Stoic Week, which actually is about to happen again. Usually it's in, sometime in October uh, or early November. And um, I looked into it. And so w- what you do is basically you, you download some materials, you, you fill out a questionnaire about your life and where you are and, you know, that sort of stuff. And you download material that uh, includes both... Um, some readings about Stoicism and some practices. And I said, finally, somebody's talking about the practice, right? As soon as I opened the, the material, the, first, the very first thing that I read was uh, a few quotes from Epictetus, who was an early second century uh, Stoic philosopher. And I was hooked immediately. This guy, uh, one of the first things that I read in, in Epictetus' discourses, he said, um, so money... Um, You have money or you want money, but how do you know how to use money correctly? Money itself isn't going to tell you. What is going to tell you how to use it correctly is your faculty of reason. And I said, oh, okay then. That makes sense to me. So this guy is saying that so-called externals, the kind of things that Aristotle thought that we need to live a good life, such as health and wealth and education and so on and so forth, by them in in themselves, they don't actually mean anything. You have to know how to use them correctly. They're tools to live mm. a good life, but you have to use them correctly. And the thing that allows you to use them correctly is uh, reason, according to uh, Epictetus, or uh, according to the Stoics more in general, virtue. And vir- they they actually define virtue as just right reason. Uh, so so I said, okay, that appeals to me. Um, let's see let's see what's going on here, and um, I practiced uh some exercises and did some more reading for that week and then i uh kept doing it until the end of the year and then i committed with myself to to do it for another year and here we are now more than six years later still talking about it
0: what's been the biggest change for you on a a personal level in terms of embracing these principles uh that's a good question um i think
1: there have been two or three major things that have happened and in fact they they kind of happened very quickly or at least they started happening very quickly I mean, you always, you always learn and you always improve it. And, you know, it's like, it's kind of like going to the gym. You see some benefits almost immediately. uh, But if you, but then you have to stick with it basically for the rest of your life. Otherwise the benefits disappear. Uh Some of my friends and family actually noted uh, immediate, almost immediately a few things. First of all, I was much more calm than before. I wasn't getting upset that easily. And that's because the Stoics tell you that, that, Anger is a unhealthy emotion that gets that clouds your judgment, and so you need to do anything, you, everything you can to move away from uh, from anger and and embrace, on the other hand, some more positive emotions such as love and and joy and uh, you know a sense of justice. But you never try, you try
0: never to get angry about things. How do you do that? Like in a in a practical sense, like how do you control your emotions in that way?
1: So Seneca. Um, uh, wrote an entire book called On Anger, where he actually goes in quite a bit of detail about how do you do that. And uh, interestingly, a lot of his advice uh, is still uh, applicable today, and, and you find it on the website of the American Psychological Association if you look at, uh, on their anger management uh, sort of section. But basically, uh, Seneca, the first thing Seneca says is, don't even think about suppressing anger. It's not going to work. You don't suppress emotions. That's why the stereotype of the Stoics trying to suppress emotions is it's not true because it's just it's simply impossible to, to suppress emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what he said, what he tells you is like monitor yourself. You will feel anger boiling up inside you, you know, in certain circumstances. Um, let's say somebody is, you know, insulting you or, or you see something that is unjust or someone somebody's done something unjust to you. You you, you know, you will feel inside your thing boiling right it's it's a physiological reaction <laughs> and you cannot control it it's it's just it's the same as um, trying to control blushing you, you just don't okay it's it's an automatic reaction however <laughs> you should pay attention to when you feel that reaction coming and immediately disengage from the situation whatever it is you're doing get out uh either literally get out meaning you know go for a walk. <laughs> Uh, Go to the the restroom if you have to, and you know, start doing some deep breathing, or or uh, disengage in any other way, like count until twenty, you know, uh, try to change subject, anything that gets you out of that particular situation. What that will do is it will gain you some time, during which your feeling of anger will subside uh, just by itself. You know, just that's just the way it works. And at that point, you can engage at a cognitive level, and essentially have a conversation with yourself and say, wait a minute, why, why the hell was I getting upset here? What was going on? And mm-hmm. what, what would be a good way to react to that kind of situation? How can I constructively engage the situation? Uh, or, or even, do I need to, enga- to engage the situation? For instance, if somebody is insulting you, right, um, do I need to engage? I don't, because an insult is just somebody opening their mouth and moving some air. It doesn't really do anything to me. It it Mm -hmm. only, it it, it affects me only if I let it, right? If I, if I feel offended, then I've been affected, but otherwise it's just words. Words don't do anything to you. They don't have any power if you don't let them, right? So sometimes Mm -hmm. you just don't engage, you just walk away. In other situations, uh, there may be something that you actually want to do. Like for instance, you know, I tend to get upset when I see things in the news uh, that are, you know, patent injustice Uh, i'm sure as you're aware of the racial unrest that has been going on in the united states for the last several months like that kind of thing upsets you but but you don't want as a stoic you don't want to to act on the basis of anger because again even though the anger may be justified it clouds your judgment so you you're you're more likely than not to do something you're going to regret to act in a in a way that is not effective so when i encounter these kind of things i again take a break first whenever I feel the, the the anger sort of swelling. And then I, fa- I say, okay, well, what can I actually do that make make a difference, even a small difference? Uh, turns out there are things that I can do, right? I can join a protest. You know, the, a lot of the protests that have been going on um, over the last few months, come straight out of the Brooklyn Bridge in New York. And my apartment happened to be just at the beginning of the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I just go downstairs and join a protest, right? Because that's, I, I do my part uh, in that sense. Uh, or I send money to organizations that support, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter or, or any similar kind of, of thing. Uh, of course, I vote for, I make sure that I vote for politicians that support certain agendas and so on and so forth, right? So I, I do, in other words... The kinds of things that I can do uh, instead of just seething with anger and, you know, sitting there and get upset. One thing I tell you I don't do, I don't go to, on Twitter or, or Facebook and start posting enraged, uh, you know, comments on it because that doesn't do anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That, that, that's just uh, that's that's more virtue signaling than actual virtue. It's like, you know, I, oh, that I, I want to let people, other people know that I'm righteous. It's like, nah, eh, that that doesn't do anything. That just makes you feel better. Um, but it doesn't actually do anything. So I try to avoid doing that.
0: It's funny when you mentioned getting angry and, and people insulting each other. The first thing I thought was Twitter. Exactly. That's, right. you know, right. that's all Twitter seems to, to be. For some reason I'm on Twitter, but I, I never go on Twitter because I just feel like it's just, it's very angry to me. Well, so yes and no. Right. I mean, it, it
1: Social media, Twitter, Facebook, you know, me, we, any, all all sorts of stuff, they're just tools. Mm -hmm. And as such, it's up to us to use them correctly or not, or not. Right. And yes, I grant you that a lot of people, in my mind at least, use them incorrectly. Uh, You you do see a lot of rage and a lot of stuff that it's like, or or, or a lot of cat videos, which for some reason, I find a complete waste of time. Um, (laughs) So, you know, a lot of people... Use of, of social media r- ranges from complete waste of time to actually negative uses, uh, you know, such, such as becoming enraged. But mm-hmm. you can also use it for good things. I mean, for instance, I'm, I'm actually very active on, on Twitter because I use it for two reasons. Number one, to broadcast either my own work or work of other people that I think should be known by others. And so, you know, I have about almost 40,000 followers. Those people presumably follow me because they, over the years, they figure out that I put out stuff that's actually interesting. At least it's interesting to them. So Mm -hmm. I I kind of use it as a broadcasting system. And I also follow a small, very, very selected number of people or organizations uh, because they post stuff that otherwise I might miss. And that's interesting to me. Uh, but I think, but, but what I don't do is to engage at length with people on Twitter. If some of my followers ask a question or make a comment that I feel, I feel it, you know, requires an answer, then I do. Um, but if I get the sense that the conversation is going and dragging on forever or that people are getting upset or they're making comments that are not constructive, i just disengage. I, you know, it's like, fine, I don't, I don't need to be in that anymore. So in a sense... Ganning every day on social media is, is perfect. It's a perfect component of my stoic training.
0: That's a really good way of thinking about it. Uh, it. One thing that I've struggled with myself is this idea of kind of understanding what is actually a problem and what isn't, because I think social media tends to magnify everything, right? So s- some opinion that somebody has around the world that, that I've ne- who I've never met, normally I wouldn't care because I don't know. But all of a sudden, because of social media, you can know every single person's opinion about everything and worry about every wrong opinion. And so trying to to discern what's actually important to engage in and what's, you know, in terms of changing public policy, things like that versus what's just some random person's opinion that won't actually have a, an impact um, I find that can be a struggle sometimes. Absolutely. So, so, but the Stoics would say again,
1: a lot hinges on your attitude toward things. Um, that is, how do you approach the, 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 whatever whatever the situation happens to be? So, in this particular case, I think your example is very is a very good one. Now, in this particular case, I simply don't approach other random people's opinions as uh, necessarily worthy of being engaged with. Mm-hmm. Um, if I want some opinion about something, let's say the, the ongoing pandemic uh, or possible scenarios about the, elect, the upcoming elections or things like that. I don't go to Twitter or Facebook. I go to the New York Times, to NPR, to the BBC to kind of, you know, the kind of sources that I trust. Trusting, of course, doesn't mean even there doesn't mean that I just buy everything that, you know, those sources publish. But I think there's some filtering there. there there's some, you know, quality control, essentially. But I still do read or at least browse through the opinions of uh, people that I encounter, you know, random people that I encounter on, on social media because but, but my attitude is different there. I'm not trying to actually learn necessarily about those those uh, those particular opinions, but rather I look at it as a as an anthropologist, as a cultural anthropologist. It's like, oh, that's interesting. So that's what people think. Oh, this is what some people tend to think about certain, certain stuff. Right. And I don't need to engage. I mean, I often get really bizarre opinions about all sorts of things. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't even need to engage because there's just not enough time in the day. I mean, I have to do, a, you know, I have an actual job uh, to do. So I, you know, it's not like every time that I see something that I think it's incorrect or misguided on the internet, I feel a compulsion to post a link or engage with the person. That would be useless most of the times anyway and way too much of a waste of time but i make a mental note i say okay well that's interesting so there are people who think this uh, and that helps me kind of try to figure out how is it that then we can get into situations at a national level that i would have thought unthinkable right one of one of the issues frankly when i was uh, more involved with the skeptic community is that there is a tendency to delude ourselves into thinking that a lot of people are more rational and more fact-based than they actually are, mm-hmm. right? Once you get out of your bubble, and, and getting on social media is a get, great way to get out of your bubble, actually, uh, is like, ah, well, it turns out I now understand why, you know, a third of the country doesn't, wear, doesn't want to wear masks in the middle of a pandemic, even though the, the evidence is pretty clear that masks are... Uh, you know, good for you, and especially good for other people. It's yeah. like, oh, okay, now I understand it, right? And so I don't, mm-hmm. I don't get upset. When you understand it, you don't get upset. You say, okay, well, these are misguided people.
0: Uh, they, they, they
1: just, they really don't know
0: better. I think that that touches on kind of what what I mentioned before about how so much of what's happening right now in 2020 is not just kind of bad luck on our part it's a series of decisions and choices that were made in the past that led to this and understanding that will help in kind of future decision making
1: yes absolutely i mean these these things you know again as both a scientist and as a stoic practitioner i do believe in in the, in the notion that the universe is essentially a intricate web of cause and effect uh, things don't just happen right mm-hmm. so we and and Often enough, we do have enough uh, sufficient mental resources uh, as well as factual information to figure out why things happen. The pandemic is a pretty, pretty good case. I mean, we have a pretty good idea, first of all, of how that, this particular pandemic happened. Um, one of the, the things that is unfortunately not sufficiently well known is that the U.S. government didn't know that this was coming. Uh, they they're known at least a month in advance of mm-hmm. the first cases in the United States, uh, which of course means that they're culpable. Certain, you know, our leaders are culpable for at least part of what happened. It would have been, you know, the pandemic itself was inevitable. People would have died anyway, um, but not that many <laughs> uh, if, if we, we, because we knew ahead of time and we didn't do anything, uh, you know, to prepare for it. But even more importantly, or more, more in a more basic manner, not only we knew that this particular pandemic was coming, we have known for years that a pandemic was very likely to come sometime very soon because epidemiologists think about this kind of stuff and they know uh, about these, these kind of things and they warned us, which is why the previous U.S. administration actually had put together a, a task force to deal with pandemics. The current administration immediately disbanded that task force. Right at the beginning of the administration. So they're culpable. These, we knew this stuff was going to happen. And if you know something that that affects people's lives, you know, people lose jobs, uh, uh, people go through, you know, very hard financial times and people die, then you're culpable for mm-hmm. these things. There's, there's no way around it. Uh, this This is... I, in a normal world, well, no, I shouldn't say normal because the world has never been that normal. In a just world, uh, these people would be prosecuted for manslaughter because they're they're literally responsible for people dying directly. Mm-hmm. But of course, as you know, that's not going to happen. No, no, <laughs> not, not, not even sure. if the you know, not even with a new administration, you know, it's just not going to happen. Uh, but that ought to be the thing that that we should be doing. But I don't get upset about the fact that it's not going to happen because. Again, you know, so, so there's Marcus Aurelius uh, in the meditations who uh, says something that is very germane to, the, to what we're talking about right now. He says, um, so you're complaining about the fact that there are bad people in the world. What the hell is wrong with you? Why, why are you complaining? Don't you know that that is the case? Hmm. I mean, you know, what you need to do is to counter as much as possible... The, the actions and the effects of those people. But then to go on and say, oh my gosh, why are there bad people in the world? It's like, what are you talking about? It's like, yeah, that's a fact of nature. It's just, it, you know, things work that way. It's useless to, to rage against nature because that's the way it works.
0: Would you characterize this approach as almost like a rational detachment?
1: Yes, the Stoics are very much going after rational detachment, that, that, that is one of the things that they're, they're having in common with the Buddhists. For one thing, right. Mm -hmm. And however, we need to be careful here because the word detachment, you know, uh, immediately brings up sort of negative connotations. Of course, it's like, oh, that means you don't care, you don't give a crap about it. No, Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that. It means that I'm trying not to get upset about things that I cannot avoid. That that's really what detachment means. It means I'm trying to do the right thing. I am trying to help out as much as I can but I'm also trying not to get upset about it because getting upset doesn't hurt doesn't help for one thing and it actually could undermine my own efforts right if I started getting upset all the time about stuff and I get depressed about things then then I don't I end up not doing anything you know, a lot of people are actually these days, especially during a pandemic, they tend to be overwhelmed. I, I'm teaching students <laughs> online here at, at uh, City College in New York. And one of the very first things that I told my students when we went fully online in, back in March was, guys, absolutely go on a media diet. And they were surprised, like, what, what do you mean? I don't I, I need to know what's going on. I said, no, actually, you don't not, not to that level where you normally are engaged Sure. Keep track of, you know, broadly speaking, at a general level of what's going on, and especially, uh, you know, keep track of what the authorities are telling you uh, we should be doing in order to be safe. But other than that, don't read every single article about the pandemic. Don't listen to every single podcast about the pandemic, because otherwise, I guarantee you, you're going to be dispirited. You're going to get depressed. And that is going to affect the way you actually act. You're going to be far less effective in your own life dealing with the problem. You don't want to get overwhelmed. So that's what detachment means. It doesn't mean don't care. It means don't let it overwhelm you. Don't be so attached emotionally to something that you're not going to. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. Sure. Um, I've, I've once known um, a, I have I a, a, a friend who for many years was working for a disaster, disaster relief organization. Mm. And at one point she was in charge of an entire refugee camp in Sudan. We're talking like 20,000 people, okay? And people were dying all the time. People were starving. Children were starving and things like that. And she had limited resources and, you know, that sort of stuff. So I said, oh my gosh, how, how, do, you, how do you actually make it through the day? Because, you know, how do you not overwhelmed by grief and, and sadness and things like that? And mm-hmm. she said, I, operate, I try to operate in the same way in which an emergency room doctor would operate. I care about these people, but I don't let it get to me. Because if it does, then, then exactly what you said is going to happen. I'm going to just, you know, crop in a ball and, and cry and do nothing. And that's going to actually hurt these people. It's not going to help them. Um, and that's the attitude. That's the attitude of a stoic. I mean, she was not, this person, you know, this friend of mine was not a stoic in the sense of a practitioner of, of the philosophy of stoicism, but it was kind of a natural stoic. Uh, she She actually had the right attitude about these things.
0: It does remind me a lot of. Uh, of Buddhism and this comparison between what you're talking about in terms of the Stoics and Buddhism, this kind of life is suffering and kind of approaches to dealing with it uh, seems similar to me. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's very, it's very similar. Life is
1: suffering and it is your duty to help people out. So you don't just say, oh, well, it's suffering, but it's other people suffering. No, no, no. It's your duty to help. But at the same time, you realize that you have to do it with a light touch because otherwise you're a human being. It becomes uh, overwhelming and then then you you'd not affect it anymore.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I never really thought much about the overlap between those, but there's there's much more significant overlap than I than I thought.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in fact, the more I read about Buddhism, especially after I started uh, studying and practicing Stoicism, the more I said, "Oh, wait a minute! There, there are a lot of similarities here. There's, there's a lot going on here." For instance, you know, one of the things that it's kind of interesting, and it's a misunderstanding, actually, of common misunderstanding of Buddhism. Uh, one of the things that I was told initially when I was comparing Buddhism and Stoicism, I, I was told that, "Oh, they they have very different." Uh, Con, uh, notions of, uh, of the self turns out that's not actually the case so what I was told is that um, Stoics have a strong conception of the self uh, they, they think you know for the Stoics everything begins with yourself um, it's, it's about it's a, it's a kind of ethics, as I said so it is a, a situation where your approach is I want to improve my character I want to improve the way in which I operate in the world so there is very much an emphasis on me and I uh, not a selfish emphasis it 's it's an emphasis that uh, that that takes into account your dealings with other people mm-hmm. but it's very much you know there's very much a conception of the self and then the uh, common stereotype about Buddhism is that uh, they believe in a no self right that there mm-hmm. is no such thing as a self um, but in fact that's those are both actually misunderstandings. On the one hand, the Stoics, yes, they do think that there is a self, but they actually understand the self in the same way in which they understand everything else as a dynamic process, not as a fixed entity. Right. It's not, it's not, the self is not a, the essential part of, of who you are and it's never changing. It's a mm-hmm. process. It's a constantly changing dynamic process, which... To me, as a biologist, it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, am I the same person that I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Well, in some sense, yes, because there's both psychological and physical continuity between me now and me 20 years ago. But at the same time, I'm definitely not the same person, you know, right? I have different beliefs. I have different experiences. I have different memories and so on and so forth. So the self is a dynamic process and it never stops until... You know, of course, until the moment you die. Turns out the Buddhists, Buddhists actually also believe in something similar. When, what they mean by no self, anatma, I think, is the, is the term that they use. They mm-hmm. don't mean there is no self. They mean there is no essence. And they were responding, they were reacting to the, Hindu, the earlier Hinduist tradition, according to which, on the other hand, there is a very strong sense, self, uh, sense of, you know, an essence that is who you are and is unchangeable. So it turns out that actually the two philosophies in that respect are actually very similar.
0: So there are certain ways that you can look at us having a self, but also many ways that we don't. Right. Is that, yeah. right.
1: If, if, so mm-hmm. long as you, if you say there is no self, none at all, right? Zero. Mm-hmm. Okay? Self is an illusion, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like,
0: Would that be kind of a Derek
1: Parfit? Uh, yeah, that would be a kind of a Derek Parfit kind of st- mm-hmm. a- approach. Then the obvious question, and I'm, I'm sorry to trivialize Parfit, who is you know, one of the m- most you know, best known and, and, and best philosophers of the 20th century. But mm-hmm. OK, so who's writing this damn book then? Wh- who am I talking to? If, if there really is no self, um, how come that that um, I'm pretty sure uh, you actually can tell the difference between you and the rest of the world?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, So, right. But that difference, of course, is not absolute. The the mistake of people who think in in essentialist terms is to think that there is a complete, sharp, absolute separation between you and the rest of the world. That's clearly not true. You're contiguous with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You're made of the same stuff for one, for one thing. You're, the stuff of which you're made changes constantly over time. So there is, a, you know, there is a clearly uh, no strong sense of the self. <laughs> but at the same time, there is something there. I mean, I'm talking to somebody right now, right? There, mm-hmm. is, there is a Chris Johnson here. I hope, <laughs> I hope somebody, so. <laughs> right? Yeah, you hope so, right? Uh-huh. So you're not a non-entity that is kind of widespread throughout the universe. It's like mm-hmm. you, you're actually a specific entity with a specific sp- spatial-temporal, uh, you know, characteristics. Mm-hmm. And and so there is a self. It's just done in an essence. Um, and uh, one of the problems I think actually, and this is honestly something that I never understood, even though I asked some of my Buddhist friends, and I never got a particularly good answer. The The bit that always strikes me as strange is, is how do Buddhists reconcile this notion of a dynamic self, let's call, let's call it, <laughs> with the notion of karma and reincarnation? Because mm. it seems to me that reincarnation requires some kind of essence. Because, you know, if not, if there's no essence, if there's no permanent part of you, then in what sense is it you the next time mm. around? And if it isn't you, then, then then the whole karmic system is highly unfair. I mean, if, if my reincarnation turns out to have nothing in common with me, then, then why is it that my reincarnation actually has to suffer the consequences of what I did during my life? It's like, that doesn't make any sense. The Stoics, on the other hand, are okay with that because they don't believe in a survival after death. They were materialists. The soul according to the Stoics, is simply your mind.
0: And once your brain dies, that's it, you're done. So you can take a lot of these good aspects from Buddhism and find them in, in the Stoics. Yes, you can. That's right. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, in fact, uh, once I started looking into, um, into it, I, I actually found similarities between Stoicism and several other philosophies, uh, including, uh, especially Eastern philosophies, including Confucianism and Taoism, for that matter. Mm. Confucianism is a type of virtue ethics, even though the Chinese don't use that term, but that is what it is. And there are a lot of similarities uh, in terms of the ethics with Stoicism. And so does Taoism. Taoism, for instance, you know, it's very famous for this notion of flow, right? This, this notion that you you try to go through life without... Opposing resistance to events, but kind of working with things. Right? One of the uh, classic uh, uh, stories in Taoism is this this guy, this guy who was um, facing a flood, a sudden flood, and everybody else was thinking about building dikes and you know building barriers and things like that. And instead, what he did was to to dig channels so that the water could flow naturally. And, uh, and no cause, not only not cause destruction, but in fact be useful to, in order to irrigate fields, right? So that's a classic example of how Taoists tend to uh, approach problems. Well, in, you find something very similar in Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius in the meditation says, you know, uh, sometimes you, you find an obstacle and you think that there is only one way forward, but there isn't. You might work with your obstacles instead of against your obstacles, and the obstacles becomes the way, he says. It, becomes, it, it, it actually directs you to a different way of doing things, and, uh, and you, can, you can move forward without actually you know, have to, having to bang your, your head on the, on the wall. So there are similarities there as well. And of course there are similarities with Christianity um because and i say of course because um a lot of the early uh, christian writers were very aware of the stoics and they took on a lot of uh, of uh, stoicism basically in early christianity um uh, paul of tarsus known as saint paul uh was actually actually knew personally seneca's brother he writes in i believe it's in the letter letter to the romans he writes about stoicism um uh, Augustine of Hippo known as Saint Augustine also engages with the Stoic tradition and so does uh, Thomas Aquinas arguably the most important uh, you know, medieval Christian theologian in fact um, modern Christians recognize seven virtues uh, and uh, these seven virtues were actually canonized by Thomas Aquinas and Thomas Aquinas put together the three more more quintessentially Christian virtues those are uh, faith, hope and charity and he Combine them with four other virtues, and, and these are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. And guess what? Those are the, stoic, the, the, the four Stoic virtues. Hmm. So, you know, and this was done on purpose. I mean, this, this was done, you know, it's not like they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, one of the most important Stoic texts is the Enchiridion, the manual by Epictetus. It's a very short manual. In fact, my my new book, that is the one that uh, at some point we need to talk about, uh, Mm -hmm. a field guide to the to the to a happy life. It's actually rewriting and updating for the 21st century of Epitulus and Caridian. Now, the Encaridian was updated before several times throughout the Middle Ages and early Renaissance, and it was updated by Christian writers, and and in fact, it was used as a manual for training, a spiritual manual for training. Uh, christian monks throughout the middle ages so so stoicism has all sorts of interesting connections or influences christianity was influenced directly by stoicism Uh, buddhism we don't know there may have been some relations at some point some relationship at some point between buddhism and early greek philosophy because we know that uh, alexander the great of course went to india and um, part of his uh, entourage was uh uh, Pyrrhus, the skeptic philosopher, so it's po- and we know that Pyrrhus actually learned the local language and talked to the early Buddhists, so it's, it's actually possible that there had been some one-way or two-way influences, we, we don't know for sure. I am not aware of any direct influence of Greek philosophy on Confucianism or Taoism or vice versa, but they arrived at similar conclusions in a number of cases.
0: So there definitely is overlap between many different traditions and what people can get out of stoicism. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You did read my mind because my very, the <laughs> very next thing I want to talk about is that you do have this new book uh, called A Field Guide to Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living. So what what caused you to want to write this book in the first place? Uh, a couple of things. That's the, yeah, that's a really good question. So a couple of things. Uh, on the one
1: hand... This is really my homage to Epictetus, my personal homage, perhaps immodest, but personal homage to Epictetus. because it has really changed my life. It literally changed my life. Uh, he was the first Stoic, as I said, that I read when I became conscious of the fact that Stoicism is a, a practical philosophy for of, of life. He was the one that really got me hooked into Stoicism because his way of talking is very straightforward, it's very clear, is very honest, and it's also, in, in some respects, very funny. I mean, he has a sense of humor that borders on sarcasm in a, in, in a few cases. And in fact, the other two books that I wrote about Stoicism before that one is a how to be a stoic and the second one is a handbook for new stoics which is one which is a book about mostly practice it's, it's a lot of exercises both of those are directly inspired by the philosophy of epictetus not just by stoicism in general but by epictetus version of stoicism because stoicism just like any other philosophy comes in a variety of flavors right like if you for instance. We, talk, we talked a lot about Buddhism, but it's really not correct to, to, anymore to talk about Buddhism in the singular. We should be talking about Buddhists in Buddhism's in the plural because mm. it's a two thousand and a half, you know, two and a half millennia old tradition. There are, you know, dozens and dozens of different schools of, of Buddhists that disagree among themselves on several points. Uh, Stoicism doesn't quite have that kind of complex history because... Uh, Its its development got interrupted basically uh, during the third century by the rise of Christianity. And then you sort of you have a gap, during which of several centuries, during which Stoicism, as I said, influenced Christianity and even influenced uh, modern uh, philosophers, like uh, early modern philosophers like Descartes, or Spinoza. But there was no school of Stoicism until the twentieth century. Right. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, there are different versions of Stoicism, and the one that really struck me as particularly powerful is is the one that is put forth by Epictetus. So on the one hand, the book is a homage to Epictetus, but, but it also serves, I hope a very practical, uh, purpose, which is look, Epictetus was a household name up until the 19th century included, you know, hmm. very few people today have heard of Epictetus. Um, in fact, the, 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 thing that one of the things that struck me when I was, um, uh, doing my, you know, moving my first steps, taking my first steps in, in, uh, learning about Stoicism, is, it's like, I said, who the hell is this guy, and why did I never hear uh, never heard about this before, uh, even though I have a PhD in philosophy and and I took courses in ancient philosophy I never heard of Epictetus. like what What the hell? And it turns out that this is actually an anomaly. I mean, Epictetus went into kind of a partial eclipse at the beginning of the 20th century uh, for a number of reasons, partly because of the rise of so-called analytical philosophy, Bertrand Russell, G. Moore and people like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And the emphasis shifted toward linguistics and logic and away from ethics, essentially. But up until the 19th century, he was a household name. Not not only in his own time, Epictetus had a school of stoicism in Nicopolis in northwestern Greece. He was so famous that emperors went there to visit. Hadrian went there to visit. And you know, the, 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 the La, la Creme de la Creme of uh, uh, Roman aristocracy sent their, their kids to study with Epictetus. So he was very famous at the time. Uh, he was famous, as I said, throughout the Middle Ages because Christian monks used his manual uh, as an as a exercise manual. And uh, all of the, oh, pretty much all of the founding fathers uh, of the United States, the American Republic, knew very well Epictetus. George Washington went into battle, uh, you know, carrying with, with him his, his copy of the Enchiridion. Uh, Thomas Jefferson uh left his personal copy of the anchor Indian to the university of virginia library benjamin franklin had a, a personal copy that he always carried with him so so the guy was really a household name and so one of the things that i'm trying to do with the, the field guide to a good life is to bring back epictetus as a household name people really should know about this guy because this this he's, he's one of the sages of of all times okay He's, he's no different. He should be just as important, in my mind, as Buddha or Confucius or Jesus. And mm-hmm. so it, I think it's important that, that people get to know him. And then the third reason to write the book is to bring Stoicism up to date to the 21st century. Because, of course, Epictetus wrote... Actually, he didn't, technically he didn't write anything. Uh, what we have by him are notes uh, written down, no, notes about his lectures, from his lectures, written down by, by what his best student, and Nicomedia. But let's call it his books. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but his books were written, you know, 18 centuries ago. And just in the same way in which nobody today is a Christian, in, in the same way in which Christians were 2000 years ago nobody's a buddhist in the same way in which people were buddhist two and a half millennia ago and so on and so forth well then very few people can be stoics today in the way in which the ancient romans were stoics Mm -hmm. Uh, because philosophy has made progress in the meantime uh, science has made progress in the meantime society has changed you know so so things need to be up to date. And so the scope of the book, as you noted, is it is 53 short lessons or short sections. That's because the original Anchor was written in 53 sections. And what I've done is to exactly parallel the original. Each one of my sections talks about the same topic that Epictetus was talking about. Um, But my rendition of it is is in modern language and using modern Uh, examples, but sometimes actually differ from are There are a number of cases where I say, okay, well, that's what they thought at the time. And that was reasonable at the time, but it's not reasonable anymore today. So here's how we can modify, maintain the spirit, you know, keep the spirit of the original, but at the same time, make it more, more relevant and more practical for the 21st century. And the book, in fact, ends with a, a table that compares, there's an appendix there, that compares every section of the original Enchiridion to a section of the field guide uh, so that people actually know. You know, I don't want people to, be, uh, to misunderstand what Epictetus himself was saying. Okay. So I want, I want my contributions or my way of looking at things to be very clearly distinct from Epictetus because it would be a, uh, a disservice to both my own uh, writings, and especially to the writings of Epictetus, if people started confusing the term.
0: Can you give some examples of what you think are some of the most important of these 53 uh, lessons?
1: So, oh, there's, there's um, Epictetus in uh, several places, in the Enchiridion, says that we should not only accept fate, as he puts it, or accept what happens to us, uh, but embrace it. Right, so this is uh, so the example. One of the examples they use is like, remember, uh, your your child is a, is is immortal and he, he, he may die, and if if he dies, then uh, you know you should be okay with it and not be upset by it. Like whoa, 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 wait a minute. What do you hmm. mean I should get, I get upset if I, if my child dies? The hell with that! I'm going to get upset if my child dies. That's one of the places where where I modify the field guide with, in, in comparison with the Encaridian. However. <laughs> Let's, let's be fair to the original. So why is Epictetus saying that? Why is Epictetus saying that we should embrace our faith no matter how bad it is? Because Epictetus at the time believed in something akin to providence. The Stoics believed that the universe is a living organism endowed with what they call the logos, that is the ability to reason. Right? Mm-hmm. And we are bits and pieces of this living organism. So imagine we're you know we're, we're like cells on uh, that are part that make these, these gigantic organism right. Mm-hmm. So imagine you were you know imagine you look at your your arm right now and you look at some of the uh, epithelial cells the skin cells right. So in the analogy we are one of those cells, and the point of those cells, of course, is to serve the body. And if the cells knew that that was the case. Yeah, epithelial cells are going to die. Uh, skin cells die usually after a few weeks and they're replaced by new cells, right? And that has, that, that has to be that way. Otherwise, <laughs> trouble uh, arises for the, org- for the organism, uh, for the body as a whole. So there has to be this these constant recycling of cells. So imagine you're, you're an epithelial cell, a skin cell, and you're, you're part of this organism, but you don't realize it. You don't understand what's going on. You, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Well, if it comes that, that you have to die, you're not going to like it. Because are go, oh, crap, why, why do I have to die? This, this is a crappy thing. Mm-hmm. But if you understood that you are part of a body, and for the, in order for the body to survive and to do well, you have to die, then Epictetus says, not only are you going to accept your fate, because it's inevitable anyway, um, but you're actually going to embrace it. You're actually going to be happy, because you're doing your part for the survival of the organism, Right. Hmm. This is a beautiful philosophy. I mean, honestly, it's, it's like, it's well thought out. It's, it's coherent and all that. Too bad that I don't believe that the, the cosmos is a living organism that with logos. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a modern scientist, I just can't believe that. I'm Sorry, that's not going to happen. And now the question then arises, well, if that's not the case, how, if I cannot believe in Stoic providence, then how are things going to be different for me as a modern Stoic? And so what I say in the field guide is like, well, in those cases, you cannot embrace anymore. You know, if if your loved ones die or if you yourself, when you yourself are going to die, you're not going to be able to embrace it because you don't believe that that's that's for the good of the universe. It's not just such a thing as the good of the universe. The universe just is. The universe is a set of dynamic processes. It's not something that, you know, depends on you for its survival. Um, But you still want to accept it with equanimity. As opposed to, let's say, throw a tantrum, right? Um, because why would you want to accept things with equanimity? Because you don't have a choice, really. Mm. Things are going to happen, right? Your loved ones are going to die. Hopefully, not your daughter or your son, uh, you know, not before you. I mean, they, they will die, but not before you. But, you know, your spouse or partner may die, eventually will die. Uh, some of your friends, your parents, certainly. You know, I went through both of my parents dying a few years ago. That's just natural. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though it it is not something as a modern stoic that I can embrace, I can certainly accept it. I can prepare myself mentally to accept it with equanimity. Again, equanimity doesn't mean you don't give a crap. (laughs) <laughs> you, you still feel sad. You still have grief, but you can process that sadness. You can process that grief in a, a much better way than otherwise. You, know, you don't you don't throw a tantrum. You don't start railing against the universe because your father died because you knew that was going to happen. What, what's what's the point? Mm-hmm. Uh, you you have to simply accept it and work your way through because you still have a life you still have other people that depend on you uh you you still have you know you still have some good to do in 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 the world as limited as it may be and so you don't want to be overwhelmed by uh negative if uh, events in your life you, you just want to accept them and move forward
0: So it's kind of like this tension between, like we talked about, kind of this rational detachment and emotion and kind of finding that space where you kind of, you can accept the universe for what it is and life for what it is, kind of on its terms, because that's all you can do, really. Correct. Exactly. Mm -hmm. In fact,
1: uh, Chrysippus, one of the uh, early Stoics uh, uh, from... from whom, unfortunately, we only have fragments of what he wrote. He wrote a bunch of books, uh, and but but all, we only have fragments of it. Chrysippus has this interesting metaphor. As I said before, the Stoics are both materialists and determinists, right? So they think that everything is made of matter, or as we would say today, matter and energy, and that um, uh, the universe is controlled by a uh, is governed by a web of cause and effect. That's pretty much Stoic metaphysics. Okay, now Chrysippus. Uh, Put forth this interesting metaphor. He said, "Look, the way you have two options basically to live your life. Imagine you are a dog that is uh, linked by way of a leash to a cart. Okay, the cart represents the universe, and you're the dog. Now the cart starts moving. Now you have two choices as the dog. You either move along with with the cart." You, you, you go in the general direction in which the cart is, is going, but, you know, you can do that at your little, a little bit of leisure. You can look around, enjoy the, the landscape. Uh, maybe the leash is, is, is long enough that you can actually, you know, sniff a few things around, you know, enjoy yourself. But generally speaking, you, you better go in the same direction. Or you can throw yourself on the ground, scratch yourself to death, try to resist the movement of the cart. Guess what's going to happen? The cart will move anyway, you will be dragged anyway, you don't have a choice in that, but you're going to have a miserable experience in the meantime. So those are our two choices. Uh, when, when the Stoics say, it's all about your attitude, that's what they mean. They mean certain things are inevitable, like death, for instance. So you, it's your choice. Uh, you can either you know, deal with it and accept it, and in the meantime do something with your life, or you can just worry your, yourself
0: sick uh, and, and get paralyzed. That's your choice. But the thing is going to happen anyway. I just want to talk a little bit about kind of how you see things moving forward. Are you optimistic about the future? Where do you see things heading at this point?
1: One thing that the Stoics teach you, which I, which I really am trying to uh, practice and try to take at the heart, is that you should live your life in what they called in Latin, ich, et nunc, here and now. That is, don't make predictions about the future. Don't have hopes about the future and don't despair about the future. And the reason for that is because the future is outside of your control right now. There's there's not not much you can do about it. Um, Worrying about the future is a waste of time. What you need to do, the best way to prepare for your future is actually to pay attention to what's happening right now. Okay, so let me give you a specific example uh, just just to to bring it down to practice, because stoicism is very much a practical philosophy. Um, So right now it comes natural to many of my friends to worry about the U.S. elections. You know, what's going to happen? No, not, not just in terms, normally they would worry because, you know, I have a lot of friends who, are of course, are sort of progressive liberal, whatever label you want to use. Right. <laughs> and normally you would worry about an election because you want your side to win, because you think that, uh, you know, a president or a Congress that it's on your side and would move for- things forward in a you know, better way than the other side. That would be a normal kind of worry. In this particular case, as you know, there's something more to worry about because there is, we are now in the unprecedented situation which a president has actually said that he doesn't know whether he will accept the result of the election. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's seriously problematic, right? I mean, we're, we're talking, I mean, a number of commentators are talking about the possible unraveling of the American uh, democratic experiment and all that sort of stuff. So there's a hell of a lot to worry about. But what good does it do? Uh, if I start worrying and, and talking constantly and reading, uh, you know, stuff about the, the unraveling of America, what is that going to do? Is, am, am I, is, it, is it actionable? Is it something I can do anything about? No, it's I'm only going to get worried. I'm only going to get paralyzed. I'm only going to get sad. I'm not going to get my job done. I, I'm not going to be able to help my friends, my family and so on and so forth. So what do I do? Well, as a stoic, I live in the here and now. So here and now, the first thing I did was I got my mail ballot. I applied for mailing ballot and in fact, I saw it, it's coming in the mail just today as we speak. And so that's one actionable thing that I can do. I can do my little part. I can vote and I can make sure that I'll vote. Uh, I also am paying attention to, uh, you know, whether there are organizations that I can help sending some money. or lucky for me during this pandemic, I retained my employment. And I have, you know, extra, you know, dispensable cash that I can use. And so I'm going to use it. Uh, I'm not a billionaire. I'm not, you know, I can't make a, individually a difference in an election, of course. Um, but I can help. I can do my, my part. I can talk to people uh, that, you know, I can talk to friends and family about voting, about the importance of getting out for, to, to vote. And, you know, that sort of, those are all things that I can do. And then what will happen will happen. It's, you know, and then I'll deal with what, what happens when and if it does happen. Uh, if things are going to go in a certain direction and this country is really going to go into, uh, you know, down into a spiral, which I still am mildly optimistic it's not going to happen. But mm-hmm. should that happen, then I'm going to, again, act accordingly. I, w- I will do whatever it is in my power uh, that I that I could do at that point to shield myself, my friends, my family uh, from whatever it's coming.
0: So, the only control that we have is in the here and now, and that affects the future, but there's no point in thinking about the future because, or worrying about the future, I should say, because you can only change what's happening here and now. That's exactly right. Massimo, it was such a pleasure to speak to you again, and I hope we get to do it again. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com/slash/theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.